Business meeting of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. On the agenda for today, we have 10 pieces of legislation, seven treaties, three nominations, and a number of Foreign Service officer lists. First, we will consider four Foreign Service officer lists, over 200 personnel referred to the committee. I support these appointments and promotions and thank all of the officers for their service. We will also consider three nominations, and I want to thank my colleagues for helping the committee to take steps forward on all of these nominations today. We also have before us seven treaties. The first is the International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture. Strongly supported by U.S. agriculture and research universities, the Plant Genetics Treaty is critical to sustaining the plant breeding revolution that has saved more than a billion people from starvation in the last century last half century. Our food security and future U.S. agriculture depend upon open access to plant material that will be made available under this treaty. The treaty's mechanisms are modeled on our own national system that has been in operation for decades. Without U.S. participation, our farmers and researchers are placed at a competitive disadvantage with 140 countries that enjoy the treaty's benefit. This committee approved the treaty on voice vote in December 2010, but, not, but did, did not ratify it before the end of the 111th Congress. I recommend the committee approve this treaty today. I want to thank all of you on this committee that are pushing that. I know Johnny's been working on this for some time. We're also considering the Convention on the Law applicable to certain rights in respect of securities held with an intermediate intermediary or Hague Convention. Um, today's trading, securities trading is global. The treaty establishes a simple method for resolving conflicts of law risk faced by our financial sector. This treaty adopts existing U.S. legal standards under the U.S. Uniform Commercial Code. The treaty is broadly supported by the U.S. financial community and is international interest. I recommend this committee approve its ratification. We also have before us five law enforcement treaties, three mutual legal assistance treaties with Algeria, Jordan, Kazakhstan, and two extradition treaties with Chile and the Dominican Republic. The MLATs provide a roadmap for law enforcement collaboration with other countries that reflects our values and aids in criminal investigations. The extradition treaties ensure that fugitives from justice are apprehended and tried appropriately while preserving our due process checks and balances. These treaties are all consistent with longstanding U.S. practice regarding law enforcement cooperation with foreign governments. I urge the committee to approve these treaties as they are, as they are an important step to strengthening our global law enforcement capabilities. Next, we'll consider the resolutions on the agenda. I will note that Senator Boxer, thank you for being here, has uh, formally requested to hold over SCON Res 41, expressing a sense, of, a sense of Congress on the Peshmerga of the Kurdistan region of Iraq to the next business meeting. First resolution we'll consider is SRES 432, supports respects for human rights, encourages inclusive governance in Ethiopia. I want to thank Senator Cardin for introducing this resolution, Senators Markey, Coons, Menendez, and Rubio for co-sponsoring. This resolution serves to this resolution serves to emphasize the opportunities and the expectations that we continue to hold important in our bilateral relationship with Ethiopia. 
Much remains to be done in Ethiopia to, to achieve inclusive governance and improve human rights performance. We'll also consider SRES 482 resolution urging the EU to designate Hezbollah in its entirety as a terrorist organization and to increase pressure on the organization and its members to the fullest extent possible. I thank Senator Shaheen and other co-sponsors on the committee for bringing this important resolution before us today. Europe has been the victim of, Hezbollah, of a Hezbollah terror attack, yet only the military wing of Hezbollah has been designated as a terrorist organization by the EU. This resolution calls on the European Union to designate the entire group as a terrorist organization. Next, we'll consider SRS 506 in support of NATO, the NATO summit, and committing NATO to a security posture capable of deterring threats to the alliance. This resolution highlights the need for NATO to transition from a simple from simple reassurance to deterrence in the face of a resurgent Russia. And I want to thank Senator Cardin for working with me on this resolution. We will also consider SRS 505 regarding compliance enforcement of the Russians, Russian violations of the Open Skies Treaty. I want to thank Senator Cardin again for your help in developing this bipartisan measure. The United States should take measures as are necessary in response to Russia's violations of the treaty, including the imposition of restrictions upon Russian overflights of the United States. Next, we'll consider SRES 503, recognizing June 20, 2016 as World Refugee Day. The unprecedented number of refugees across the globe, and particularly from Syria, has led to unprecedented suffering and has strained our collective capacity capacity to govern. I appreciate Senator Cardin working with us to bring a good balanced resolution <laughs> forward to mark World Refugee Day. We also have SRES 501 expressing the Senate the sense of Congress on Russian military aggression. I want to thank Senators Perdue, Johnson, Gardner, Menendez, Risch, and Shaheen for working together to bring attention to Russia's reckless, aggressive military behavior. We also have S. Conres 38, a concurrent resolution reaffirming the Taiwan Relations Act and six assurances as counterstones of the U.S.-Taiwan relations, of U.S.-Taiwan relations. I would like to thank Senators Rubio, Menendez, Perdue, and Gardner for introducing this important and timely bipartisan <coughs> resolution. Taiwan is a good friend and partner of the United States, and it's critical for the U.S. Congress it's critical that, US, that our U.S. Congress continues to demonstrate support for the Taiwan people and our shared democratic values. The last resolution considered today will be SRES 504, recognizing the anniversary of the Fulbright program. This program not only promotes U.S. higher education abroad, but also remains a diplomatic tool. And I thank Senators Bozeman and Leahy for introducing this legislation. Today we'll also consider SRES 1605, the MCOR Act. I want to commend Senators Cardin, Isaacson, Coons, and Flake for bringing this bipartisan legislation to the committee. It's an important step for the Millennial Challenge Corporation. Uh, it's an, something that uh, I know we've been trying to reform for some time. MCOR will ensure that the agency takes coordinated and thoughtful approach in implementing regional compacts. Additionally, this legislation establishes necessary reforms that will safeguard democratic values and foster good governments over, government, over, governance overseas. Lastly, Charlotte, I'm sure you're glad to hear that word. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I'm glad to hear it. We will consider S-2201 Global Gateways Trade Capacity Act of 2015. Current U.S. trade capacity building assistance is unfocused. It's really unbelievable how it's spread through so many different departments, and it's inefficient, and it lacks a comprehensive strategy. This legislation is designed to bring, designed to bring a focused and coordinated effort to trade capacity assistance for developing countries. It also will provide resources to help developing countries implement the World Trade Organization Trade Facilitation Agreement, TFA. I thank the ranking member for his role in this effort. I urge my colleagues to support a bill that I believe reflects how we should be using existing foreign assistance dollars to advance U.S. economic interests. Let me just say this on this one. If you look at much of our foreign aid today, it is built, it's built around a Cold War mentality where what we're trying to do is buy influence, buy influence in countries. We've got to move to something that generates economic growth. Almost every single issue we work around, work on around here relative to other countries is hoping that they're going to generate the economic growth that will improve the standard of living in their countries and cause them to be less receptive to uh, ISIS and other entities that take advantage of people that are not moving along. And I hope that we can move our foreign aid in a direction that promotes economic growth. I look at this as a step in that direction. With that, I'd like to recognize our distinguished ranking member, Senator Cardin. Well, Mr. Chairman, thank you for that uh, very lengthy uh, introduction. Because I it means No, 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 because it means we have a very full agenda. And uh, I thank you very much for the accommodations, not only for me, but for many members of this committee and the United States Senate uh, in uh, working to get legislation ready for approval by this committee, as well as the resolutions and the treaties. Uh, in addition, of course, we have the nominations and the foreign service list. So I, uh, I, I thank you very much for um, accommodating uh, this lengthy agenda today, and I hope we can move through it rather quickly. I just really want to emphasize the last issue you talked about, the Global Gateway Bill, that uh, through your leadership we have before us today. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, we invest a lot of U.S. Uh, taxpayer dollars and a lot of our efforts on world security and stability. And uh, we spend a lot of money in foreign assistance. And what your legislation will do is assist us in, in helping countries develop transparent, predictable, and simplified trade procedures so that we can get growing economies and economies that can provide stability for the people of the region. So I thank you for your legislation uh, on Global Gateway, and I was proud to work with you on that legislation. Uh, thank you for also accommodating the Millennium Compact for Regional Economic Integration. Uh, I do thank my colleagues, uh, Senator Flake and, and Senator Isaacson and Senator Coons, for their help in developing this. It's a very simple bill that says to the Millennium uh, uh, compact that we can use regional in addition to country. This gives us greater flexibility in dealing with issues such as in Africa where we have energy issues or in Central America where we have economic challenges where we can use the uh, larger region in order to be able to achieve even greater results in the individual uh, countries. Uh, Mr. Chairman, you mentioned the, the different resolutions that we are considering. I'm going to be very, very brief. Thank you for bringing up the Ethiopia resolution. I thank Senator Rubio and Senator Gardner for their help, Senator Markey, Coons, and Menendez. Since 2005, the government 
has been using tactics to stifle free speech and debate, including using anti-terrorism uh, um, efforts in the name of anti-terrorism to block free expression. And we know the specific case of the Zone 9 bloggers, and there are many other examples that have been used in Ethiopia. And this resolution speaks, I think, clearly to that issue. Thank you on the World Refugee Day. Uh, it's widely supported in, in our caucus, and I think it's bipartisan. I want to thank Senator Rubio. I want to thank Coons, uh, uh, Kane, Markey, Menendez, Murphy. <laughs> 65 million displaced people globally, and this uh, states our uh, responsibilities in regards to that humanitarian crisis. The NATO resolution, glad to work with you on that. The summit's coming up soon, and we're going to have a hearing in a few minutes that will emphasize the need for us to be able to use NATO effectively to deal with the challenges presented by Russia, as well as the challenges presented by the increased terrorist threat in Europe and in our region. Uh, Russia military aggression, I want to thank Senator Perdue. Uh, I strongly support his resolution. I think it speaks to the, the major challenges we're having with Russia today. Taiwan, glad we have that resolution. The concerns in that region are very, very challenging and restates our firm commitment uh, to Taiwan. Uh, open skies, an area that you uh, uh, helped take the lead on. I want to thank Senator Cotton for his efforts on that regard, where we could come together with a very strong resolution speaking to what we believe uh, needs to be our policies in regards to Russia and the Open Skies Treaty. Uh, and also, thank you for the Fulbright, uh, Senator Bozeman's uh, resolution, important. The treaties are all important. You mentioned the plant genetic resources. That helps developing countries. It helps develop new crop outcomes. And, and that, the one you mentioned, a report on the uh, security held with an intermediary, which what that treaty does is take basically the, the uh, uniform commercial code that we are bound by and uses that uh, to make sure that we can have a little bit more uniformity on the securities held globally. Extradition treaties are important and the mutual legal account in uh, criminal matters are important, five countries involved in those treaties, nominations, foreign service lists, we have a busy agenda. Thank you. Thank you. Um, there's going to be a lot of time for people to comment on individual pieces, uh, so if people could maybe wait until that time. I think Senator Boxer may want to speak, though, to the Kurdish uh, Stan issue. I do, and, and thank you so much. Um, first, I want to congratulate both of you on what is a really full um, and important agenda. I am so disappointed, though, that uh, my chairman and my ranking member uh, were going to change, uh, did, had an, a, a substitute amendment that would have undermined the Ernst Boxer resolution uh, to give arms directly to the Kurds. Now, I, I want to point out that um, we've been trying to do this for a while, for a long while, and in NDAA, we got 54 votes. Uh, for an authorization to directly arm the 54 votes. We needed 60. But a majority of the United States Senate wants this done. And, and I'm sad to say I don't believe we have a majority of this committee and we don't have the administration. And I think, in all due respect, uh, it's a huge mistake. Um, the Kurds have been our most effective partner on the ground. I don't think there's any disagreement with that. They took back Mount Sinjar from ISIS, rescuing tens of thousands of Yazidis, cutting off the main supply lines between ISIS's strongholds of Raqqa in Syria and Mosul in Iraq. They played a crucial role in retaking the Mosul Dam 
and they'll be absolutely critical in the fight to retake the city of Mosul. The Kurdish regional government has also provided refuge to over one million refugees from Iraq and Syria. Beyond these headlines, Kurdish forces are fighting on the front lines, facing ISIS every single day. Everybody around here goes to the floor and rightly so condemning, condemning these monsters. So the people who are, are out there uh, are getting, I think, the back of the hand here in many ways. Kurdish leaders have expressed concern that their forces are overstretched and they lack the necessary equipment to combat ISIS's forces in Iraq. This includes medium and heavy weaponry that they need to defend themselves, particularly against vehicle-mounted improvised explosive devices used by ISIS. In April, their deputy prime minister, Talabani, said, quote, unless we get direct support, we will not be able to continue the way we are currently in the fight against ISIS. He said, that the KRG is facing drastic and unprecedented fiscal and economic challenges, which if unresolved will, quote, undoubtedly impact the ability of our forces to keep on the front line. It is clear they are in desperate need of financial assistance, and I was pleased that the U.S. has pledged $415 million in April, and we must make it a priority to ensure that the KRG quickly receives these funds and future assistance. The Deputy Prime Minister's statements underscore why Senator Ernst and I introduced a bill last year to provide the President with the temporary emergency authority to provide weapons, equipment, and training directly to Kurdish military forces for their fight against ISIS. So we're not considering this bill today because of the substitute amendment that was going to be offered that would call for the explicit approval of the, of the Iraqi government. You know, that's, if anyone's been there and discussed the Kurds with either the Sunni or the Shia, as I did, the attitude toward the Kurds is horrific. And I'm telling you, this is a big historic mistake, and, I, and I'm criticizing Democrats and some Republicans here. Yeah. Some Democrats and some Republicans. It is a bipartisan disagreement that I have, okay. and with yeah. the administration. Okay. So, you know, I think we need to make a commitment to the Kurds in their fight against ISIS, who's raping and torturing and killing innocent civilians, who has forced thousands of women and girls into sexual slavery, who has sent children out on the battlefield to suicide bombers, who have committed genocide against the groups in areas under its control. The f Kurds are fearless. They need our help. And to set up a circumstance where they need to get approval from some people who are so prejudiced against them that it, it, it sends chills up and down my spine, I just am really sorry about it. So I'm hoping to work with my colleagues to see if in the week ahead or, you know, we pulled it off today and Senator Ernst and I are in full agreement that this should not have happened, that we should have supported this. But I'm so happy to work with you because maybe I... I'm misreading where you're coming from, but I hope there's a way that we don't have to get the approval of the Iraqi government to <laughs> where we have lost so many people for them. Now we need their approval to help our best allies in the area who are going after ISIS 
it's so it's I'm sorry to go on so long. I'll stop, yeah. but I hope we can work something out, Mr. Chairman. Well, I, I thank you for your passion, and um, I too am uh, very close to the Kurdish people, and spend a lot of time with President Barzani and his foreign minister, and been to Erbil many times. And just for what it's worth, we worked with them on this resolution. They support the resolution. I talked to them. And, and, I, and I just want you to know, we, we, I know that they're moving towards uh, greater independence. Um, I just met with them uh, within the last 10 days. I think Senator Cardin did too. And they support what we're doing. They want the United States Senate to fully endorse this resolution because they believe it, it puts them in the right place. Um, so, uh, look, we've, uh, we've gone through how the weaponry is getting to the Kurdish people. Um, there's language in here that, that points to that. Uh, we are giving them economic aid, which again, by the way, is going through the Iraqi government. And by the way, this is being done because I think the Kurdish people understand that while they want greater independence, and they are great friends and they're supported by the United States, that to begin a separation process right now where they're dealing with ISIS on one hand and then will have the wrath of the rest of the people of Iraq on the other is not the right place for them to be there. So I just want you to know again, Joni Ernst, who worked with you on the floor, fully supports our resolution today, fully supports our resolution today. The Kurdish government fully supports our resolution today. And I'm disappointed that uh, we're going to have to wait a little while to do it again. I think we may have the same result, but I thank you for your passion. I really do. And want you to know that we would not be doing this in a vacuum. We would be doing it as we have before, working really, really closely with the Kurdish people. And I thank you for your passion. Well, if, Mr. Chairman, Senator Carter, if, if, if I could, Senator if I could Carter. just have a word first, Senator Boxer, and then certainly you want to hear your comments. First, I, I join the chairman in uh, expressing our appreciation for your commitment to the Kurdish people, your commitment to security in that region, and to the protection of, of all communities in, the, in Iraq. And I understand uh, the conversations you had in April. S Senator Cork and I had conversations just a couple weeks ago with the leaders uh, of the Kurdish uh, community. Their number one concern today is whether they can make payroll, their economic circumstances. That's their number one concern. Their number one concern is that we strengthen the Iraqi central government at this particular moment. And, and, and Chairman Corker is correct. The long-term issues on the either the uh, uh, ability of the Kurdish population to self-determine their future, in what state is that? Is it uh, is it a full independence? Is it part of Iraq? That's an issue that is going to be debated and is not resolved. But the immediate concern for Iraq is to have a government that can protect all of the ethnic communities and it can work efficiently, effectively, including in the Kurdish areas. So, <coughs> yes, uh, we very much want to make sure that the, the Kurds, who have been our most reliable fighters in the region, you're absolutely right about that, have the equipment that they need in order to defend themselves in order to help us in our fight against ISIL. We do want to make sure they have that. And there have been problems, and we've worked out some of those problems. But you don't undermine the central government in an effort to resolve that issue. You work with 
the parties. And that's exactly what we have done, worked with the Kurdish leaders in an effort to make sure that they have a true ally in the United States and that this resolution that was worked out was done with that in mind. It's more involved than just arming the Kurds. If I could respond, I stand on every single thing I said. I double down. I know about what people say. I know when people are desperate what they want. I've been around here a long time to understand it. But I'm just saying to you, we know the situation. And you're absolutely right. They need the financial aid. And, and that's absolutely critical. They also need the military help, or they will not be able to sustain against ISIS. And if that is one of our greatest priorities, the way should be clear. Now, I want you to know that I've been in very close touch with Senator Ernst. She gets the whole situation as well. And what we're hoping is, in this little time since we took this down, we'll have a chance to perhaps improve it in a way that the signal is very, very clear. Because you know all politics is local. I don't have to tell you that. We all know that. And in Iraq, all you have to do is know the history. We all know it. We've been super involved. And the pain of that history comes back. And the pain of that history is the incredible rivalries and problems and prejudices within Iraq. So the bottom line is, if this group is doing our work of going after ISIL, which is indeed what all of us have said we want, and I think we all want them to continue, and they're in def desperate shape in terms of military equipment, it seems to me pretty clear. And it, has, it doesn't have anything to do, in my view, I disagree with my, my leaders here, which is rare, very rare. You know, it, it has nothing to do with the idea that we want one Iraq. Of course we want one Iraq. People died for that, for God's sakes, 4,000 soldiers. I would just but ask that we... Same, I'll stop, but okay, you won't have good. to hear this Thank anymore. You. But the bottom line is when we stand up and make these speeches about going after ISIL and we see what happens with the lone wolves and the rest of it, we ought to be a little more direct about our feelings toward the Kurds. That's that, and I would rest my case on that. I lost it, okay. but we'll come back and hope that we can okay. renegotiate something. Let me just reiterate, the, uh, the Kurdish government fully supports our resolution. President Barzani has told me he's getting every piece of equipment we've committed to him and getting. And uh, I think there's <clears throat> there are some myths out there relative to, to what's actually happening in the transfer from Baghdad. But with that, um, let me move on. First order of business today uh, will be four Foreign Service lists. Senator Cardin, do you have any comments you want to make on these lists? No, I thank you for bringing them forward. I move we approve them. Anyone like to speak to these lists? There's no further discussion on these lists. I would entertain a motion to approve these lists and block by voice vote. So moved. Is there a second? So moved and seconded. The question's on the motion to approve four Foreign Service lists and block. All those in favor say aye. Aye. All opposed? The ayes have it. With that, the appointments and promotions are agreed to. Next, in the interest of time, I'd ask the committee to proceed on block voice vote in consideration of the following nominees before the committee. The Honorable Jita Posse to be Ambassador to Chad, the Honorable Mary Beth Leonard, to be the representative of the U.S. and the African Union, the rank of Ambassador, and Ms. Ann Casper to be Ambassador to Burundi. Thank all these nominees for being willing to settle into these positions. Senator Cardin, do you have any comments on these nominees? 
I move the nominations. Is there any member who wishes uh, to speak to these nominees? If there's no further discussion on the nominations, I would entertain a motion to approve them by voice vote and block. So moved. Is there a second? So moved and seconded. The questions on the motion to approve the nominations. All those in favor say aye. Aye. Opposed? With that, the ayes have it. The nominations are agreed to. Next, I'd like to consider the seven treaties on the agenda. Senator Cardin, do you have any comments on any of these treaties? No, I support them all. Thank you, sir. Uh, is there any member who wishes to speak to any of these treaties? If there's no further discussion on these, I'd entertain a motion to approve them by voice vote and block. Is there a second? Second. So moved and seconded. The questions on the motion to approve the seven treaties. All those in favor say aye. Aye. All opposed? With that, the ayes have it. The treaties are agreed to. Next, we'll consider SRS 506, the NATO resolution. Senator Cardin, do you have any comments on this? Uh, no, I've already commented on it. Um, no, I strongly support the resolution. And uh, again, thank you for your help and leadership in putting this together. Thank you. Anyone uh, else like to speak? If there's no further discussion. Mr. Chairman. Yes, ma'am. I'd like to be added as a co-sponsor. Absolutely. Thank you. Without objection. Um, if there's no further discussion on this resolution, I entertain a motion to approve the Rubio Amendment Number 1 by voice vote. So moved. Is there a second? So moved and seconded. The question, is there a second? second. Okay, thank second. you. So moved and seconded. The question is on the motion to approve the Rubio Amendment 1 by voice vote. All those in favor say aye. Aye. All opposed? With that, the ayes have it. The amendment's agreed to. Next, I'd entertain a motion to approve the Corker Cardin Second Degree Amendment to the Rubio Amendment Number 2. Is there a second? So, so moved. So moved and seconded. The question is on the motion to approve Corker Cardin's second degree amendment to the Rubio second degree by voice vote. Rubio Amendment 2 by voice vote. All those in favor say aye. Aye. All opposed? With that, the ayes have it. The amendment is agreed to. Next, I'd entertain a motion to approve Rubio Amendment number 2 amended by the Corker Cardin second degree. So moved. Is there a second? second. So moved and seconded. The question is on the motion to approve Rubio. Number two is amended by Corker Card in second degree. All those in favor say aye. aye. Opposed? With that, the ayes have it. The amendment's agreed to. Are there any further amendments? Hearing none, is there a motion to approve this resolution as amended? So moved. Is there a second? second. Moved and seconded. The question's on the motion to approve SRES 506 as amended. All in favor will say aye. aye. Opposed? With that, the ayes have it, and the resolution as amended is agreed to. Next, we'll consider SRES 505, the Russian violations of the open violations of the Open Skies Treaty Resolution. Senator Cardin, any comments? I've already commented about it. Thank you for your leadership on this. And I'm going to, if it's okay with the, I just want to speak to this, I'm going to go through a procedure, if I could, to put Senator Cotton at the top of this, since he really raised this issue. Um, I know he's on it already. I, I have no objections. This Senator Cotton was the one who worked with us um, and urged us to do this. So. Yeah. yeah, I just think it's an appropriate way for us to go about it. Are there any members who wish to uh, speak to this resolution? Thankfully. <laughs> Thank you, Amber. Is there, if there is no further discussion on this resolution, I entertain a motion to approve this by voice vote. Is there a second? Second. So moved and seconded. The question's on the motion to approve SRES 505. All those in favor say aye. Aye. Opposed? All those uh, opposed? With that, the ayes have it and the resolution's agreed to. That our next order of business is 
Then I also ask we consider on block by voice vote are the remaining resolutions before the committee, SRES 432, SRES 482, SRES 503, SRES 501, SCON RES 38, SRES 504. <coughs> Senator Cardin, do you have any comments? Uh, no, I support them all. Are there any members that wish to speak to these resolutions? Senator Mr. Menendez. Chairman, Mr. Chairman, you all did such a great job of uh, uh, going to them all. I just want to briefly uh, uh, synthesize on two. On the Russian uh, S-501, uh, I, I think it's very important uh, that the Senate express its sentiment about where Russian aggression is going. Because in my mind, unchecked Russian aggression without consequences at the end of the day uh, by both diplomacy, sanctions, and other diplomatic tools is a concern. Uh, they went over and took over Crimea and the world lamented and, you know, uh, scolded, but that was the end of that. Then they did uh, Eastern Ukraine, uh, creating an effort to create another frozen conflict. They're still not pursuing their elements of the Minsk Agreement. Then they enter into Syria and change the dynamics of Syria to prop up the Assad regime. Then they constantly uh, seek to uh, create friction with our own forces uh, by their flyovers and whatnot. I, I just think it goes on and on and on. I won't belabor it, except to say that uh, Putin is someone who only understands strength at the end of the day. And uh, unless he has a sense that uh, there will be consequences for his actions, he will continue to take them. So I'm glad that we've come together on a resolution, at least, that speaks towards that. Uh, and I appreciate the leadership of both you and Senator Cardin on it. And secondly, on the Taiwan Relations Act, which has had uh, enormous support, there couldn't be a more important moment at this time with the uh, uh, efforts of China to create a, a, such an overwhelming uh, presence in the region and to try to uh, dwarf uh, all of the other countries in the region in a way that is intimidating than to reassert uh, our support and relationship with Taiwan uh, so that uh, China also understands uh, that there are consequences as well. So I, I just, there are other resolutions that are important, but in the interest of time and your hearing, uh, I'll reserve that for the record, but I did think these two are important, and thank you for yeah, the Thank you. I, I do think we have some very strong resolutions here, and I think they make more of a difference than I fully realized when I first came on the committee. Any other, any other comments? If there's no further discussion on these resolutions, I'd entertain a motion to approve these unblocked by voice vote. So moved. Is there a second? Thank you. So moved and seconded. The question is on the motion to approve six resolutions in block. All those in favor say aye. aye. All opposed? With that, the ayes have it and the resolutions are agreed to. Next, we will consider S-2201, Global Gateways Trade Capacity Act of 2015. Senator Cardin, do you have any comments? I support it and thank you for your leadership on it. Would anyone else like to speak to this legislation? Senator Coons. I'll just offer one sentence of thanks uh, and compliment to both you and Senator Cardin for your great leadership on both of these bills, which make a real contribution to development in Africa. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yes. yeah. Mr. Chairman. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I'd like to call up Barrasso Amendment Number 1 to the Global Gateways Bill. 
The purpose of the amendments straightforward. If this is the appropriate time to do that, yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, this amendment strikes second section seven of the bill, which does create a brand new three hundred million dollar trade facilitation pilot program with over ninety five percent of the world's consumers living outside the U.S. We should be aggressively pursuing new trade opportunities wherever they arise, and we must work to identify and eliminate barriers to trade whenever possible. Uh, to that end, this bill points out some very important facts. Uh, according to the U.S. Trade Representative, the United States is one of the largest single country providers of trade-related assistance. There is no single coordinating agency for trade capacity building activities in our government. And according to the GAO, in 2012, we spent nearly a billion dollars in trade capacity building efforts in 120 countries, which were implemented by 20 different agencies and departments. I believe we can do better. So uh, while I recognize we may have uh, international obligations, we also have an obligation to the American taxpayer to make wise decisions in the face of over $19 trillion in debt facing the country. So I don't believe that putting an additional $300 million towards trade facilitation on the taxpayer's credit card is a wise decision. Until we properly prioritize and coordinate current spending, we should not be uh, discussing new spending. So I support many of the stated objectives of the legislation. I support the smart, streamlined, uh, the whole of government approach to trade capacity assistance, but I just can't support creating a pilot program spending $300 million on top of the nearly billion we're already spending in trade-related assistance. So as I see it, pilot programs are a first step toward permanent spending. That's a step I'm not willing to take at this time, so I would urge my colleagues to support the amendment, and I ask for a roll call vote. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you so much. If I could just respond, um, we have, as you mentioned, we're spending a billion dollars at least on trade programs uh, throughout the U.S. government. They are uncoordinated, unfocused, and the purpose of this uh, pilot program is to do away with that, is to consolidate, is to create something that actually works. Um, there is $300 million, by the way, being authorized not spent, authorized over the next five years. And if we actually had a State Department authorization bill, which we don't have, unfortunately, we'd be more than willing to offset against that State Department authorization. But as the Senator rightly knows, because there's not an authorization that exists right now, we haven't done one since 2002, there's nothing to offset against. So this is actually going to save taxpayers over time. It's not unlike, by the way, on the Veterans Bill, if you remember, there was a clause to create a choice program. It was a pilot program to really transform the way that uh, veterans benefits are delivered to people around the country so that people could actually seek services in other places. Well, this pilot program is, has much of that same mentality, and that is to, to make what we're doing far better. I appreciate the Senator's concerns about fiscal issues. Actually, that's why we created this, was to save our government money over time to do away with a Cold War model of foreign aid that we have right now that does nothing but buy influence and to try to create a program that actually encourages, creates a possibility these countries' standard of living is going to increase. So I understand uh, uh, based on just the number why you might raise this issue. I strongly oppose this amendment and uh, hope that we'll vote it down. Mr. Chairman, if I might just very briefly, and I know Senator Brasso's uh, intentions on following uh, this amendment, but I strongly agree with the chairman and urge our colleagues to reject the amendment. Whether you believe that we have to do more in this area in foreign policy or whether you think 
that we need to be much smarter in how we spend our foreign dollars, you should reject the Brasso Amendment. I'll tell you why. We're not going to grow the size of our budgets. We know that. We've got to get more effective with the resources we're currently using. And we have too many fragmentation of programs, and we have to be able to use these programs more effectively to accomplish our missions. And that's exactly what this bill attempts to do, is to take our, our current presence in this area, focus it in a more effective way so that we can get the results in the country that are in the best interest of U.S. foreign policy. And that's what this bill is intended to do, and I would just urge my colleagues to reject the amendment. Any other comments? I, I will say this. I appreciate this committee to me has got about as good a membership as anyone would want, and I appreciate uh, Senator Barrasso raising this. We have a difference of opinion. I appreciate the passion that Senator Boxer expressed earlier today, and I'm going to miss her uh, after January. I'll call, uh, call me. Good. <laughs> good. Um, and I, I'm glad we can have a debate like this and have passion and people disagree or agree uh, without that. Uh, but after saying that, uh, if we could, let's move on with this. And uh, you want to, okay. So you're moving. Is there a second? No, maybe not. I'll, I'll second Thank it you. so you can have a vote. I don't want to. Appreciate it. Even though I hate the amendment, I second <laughs> it. I want everybody to be heard today. So uh, uh, with that, did you, did you want a roll call vote? <laughs> um, with that, uh, all in favor of the Brasso Amendment, uh, say aye. Aye, aye. All opposed to it? Nay. Uh, the nays have it. Thank you for bringing this issue forward. No. And I think would anyone else want to be recorded as a no? On the, on, aye on the amendment. Aye on the amendment. Excuse me. Okay. Senator Rubio and Senator Brasso, thank you very much. Um, if there is uh, no further discussion, I would entertain a motion to consider Corker substitute amendment by. You move your substitute, yes. By voice vote. So move. Is there a second? Second. So moved and seconded. The questions on the motion to approve the Corker substitute amendment. All those in favor say aye. aye. Opposed? With that, the ayes have it. The amendment is agreed to. Any further amendment? Uh, Senator Brasso be recorded as a no. Anyone else? If there's not a motion to approve, if there's not, is there a motion to approve the legislation as amended? So moved. Second. second. So moved and seconded. The questions on the motion to approve S-2201 as amended. All in favor say aye. Aye. Opposed? With that, the ayes have it. The legislation, as amended, is agreed to. Lastly, we'll move to S-1605 MCOR Act. Senator Cardin, do you have any comments you want to make? I've on already this? commented about it. I urge my colleagues to support the legislation. Would anyone else like to speak to this legislation? If there's no further discussion, I would entertain a motion to consider the Corker Amendment by voice vote. Uh, so move. Is there a second? Second. So moved and seconded. The questions on the motion to approve the Corker Amendment substitute. All those in favor say aye. 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 Opposed? With that, the ayes have it. The amendments agreed to. Are there further amendments? I move that are we, we uh, favorably. Are we good? Are there any further?
We're not doing it right now. Oh, you need to There's an amendment, uh, Mr. Chairman, we have an amendment that changes to okay. reporting requirement. I would move yep. that amendment. Okay. So uh, we, all those, uh, there's a motion to move the Cardin substitute. Uh, is there a motion to, to so, move? So move the a second. Secondary amendment, yeah. Uh, it's been moved and seconded. All in favor, say aye. aye. All opposed? The ayes have it. So moved and seconded. Questions on the, with that, the ayes have it. The amendments agreed to. Is there a motion to approve the legislation as amended? So move. Is there a second? So moved and second. Questions on the motion to approve S1605 as amended. All in favor, say aye. aye. Opposed? With that, the ayes have it. The legislation as amended as, is agreed to, and that completes the committee's Mr. Business. Chairman, can I be recorded as a no? Thank you. Uh, Senator Brasso reports no. Anyone else? I ask unani unanimous consent that staff be authorized to make technical and conforming changes without objection. So ordered. And with that, and without objection, uh, this outstanding committee meeting, uh, business meeting, is coming to a close. We're adjourned. This hearing of the Foreign Relations, this hearing of the Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Just a couple of weeks, NATO will meet in Warsaw for the final meeting of the Alliance Heads of States. Never has there been more critical or opportune moment to discuss and recommit the central tenets of the Washington Treaty, collective defense, crisis management, and cooperative security. The threats of the Alliance have not diminished, rather they've grown more complex and dispersed. The Russian Federation has repeatedly, it would appear, intentionally bombed innocent civilians in Syria, begun remilitarizing the Arctic, violating both the intermediate-range nuclear forces and the Open Skies Treaty. Russia adds to this continuing collection of abuses in the cyber domain and along NATO's eastern flank, where Russia forces, Russian forces continue to occupy portions of Ukraine and, Russia, and Georgia that were invaded, at least in part, to keep those aspiring NATO members from joining the alliance. Additionally, the Islamic State has begun targeting civilian populations and NATO members, attacking both Paris and Brussels. And finally, the flow of asylum seekers into Europe, both through NATO member Turkey and across the Mediterranean, has placed numerous pressures on NATO, its members, and their operational capacities. The alliance remains committed to and involved in resolute support mission in Afghanistan. Just last week, I called on President Obama to clearly articulate his intentions for U.S. troop strength for this mission prior to the summit in order to deliver a clear message about U.S. leadership and the efforts to secure a stable and democratic Afghanistan and generate essential support for our NATO allies in this endeavor. At the Wales Summit in 2014, the Alliance began to lay the groundwork for changes that will ensure NATO's preparedness to act. The NATO Readiness Action Plan was approved to bolster NATO's air, naval, and ground forces presence along the eastern flank. This included the establishment of a very high readiness joint task force capable of deployment within a few days to respond to threats against any ally. This force should be fully operational by the end of 2016. The Alliance also agreed to and had increased the scale and scope of military exercises to improve the preparedness in a combined operating environment. At the Wales Summit, Allies also recommitted to halting, 
to halting the decline in defense spending and move towards a target of spending 2 percent of GDP on a defense within a decade. This has been an issue that's been with us for a long time. Uh, we have got to overcome this. It's a problem with our alliance that, again, uh, has got to be taken seriously. It's encouraging that 16 of the allies have increased or maintained steady defense budgets since that time. However, only five nations currently meet the 2 percent target, the United States, Estonia, Greece, Poland, and UK. And actually, the UK is moving towards that. They're not quite there. The Warsaw Summit must call for and build upon plans to improve burden sharing across the alliance. More importantly, the Warsaw Summit must assure a larger transition from simply reassuring allies to actively deterring aggressors, such as a shift requiring difficult discussions of forced posture, readiness, authorities, and planning. Today, we'll examine the opportunities available at the upcoming summit. We need to address a number of issues, and I look forward to hearing from our witnesses today and certainly the questions that will follow with that, uh, our distinguished ranking member, Senator Cardin. Well, well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. This is a very, very timely hearing, and first, we apologize to our two witnesses uh, for the delay uh, because of the business meeting, but that's the way we get our work done in this institution, and we're able to move a lot of legislation today and resolutions. Uh, as I said, it's a very timely with the Warsaw uh, Summit taking place uh, next month. As I said in the comments on the resolution that we just passed in the committee, uh, NATO has challenges. It has challenges in dealing with Russia's aggression. It has challenges dealing with the uh, terrorism threats. It has challenges dealing with the uh, migration issues and immigrants. It has, uh, at the Warsaw Summit, dealing with expansion of membership of countries that desire to become part of NATO. Uh, one is ready. Others are very much interested in, in uh, furthering uh, the progress towards membership uh, with NATO. It's interesting, um, the, the, I, I would say the two most important organizations for security of Europe is NATO and EU. And EU is having a major vote today in Great Britain with Brexit. And I know we're all anxious to see how that turns out. I certainly hope that Remain uh, wins and that uh, Great Britain remains part of EU. EU clearly needs to reform, but I think it's in uh, England's interest as well as Europe's interest for them to work out their problems collectively and not uh, separately. So we'll, we'll see how that goes, but it's certainly a, a matter of great international interest what is happening in, in, in Europe today. But it does underscore the point whether it's EU or NATO, that we too often take these institutions for granted. And it's important to take a moment and remind ourselves why it's, they, they're important and why they exist, and to remind ourselves we helped establish and build these institutions to begin with. These institutions are fundamental to preserving peace, stability, and promotion of these values that we hold dear. So I, I, I hope that this hearing will have a chance to take a look at what we expect to accomplish in NATO. First, NATO is achieving the appropriate balance. Uh, this, this is a question. First, is NATO achieving the appropriate balance between its efforts to address Russia aggression and NATO's eastern borders and its efforts to address the complex security challenges posed by instability and violence from the South? Second, all NATO members must fulfill their budgetary commitments to dedicate 2 percent of their GDP to defense. Our chairman has mentioned that at every meeting we've had with a NATO ally, publicly, privately, and has been very consistent about our expectations. 
We are patient people. Well, maybe we're not that patient people. But we expect to see greater progress. I know we've seen some progress, but we, uh, it's something that is critically important, we believe, for NATO's uh, future. Finally, we should view the aspirations of potential member states, like Georgia, Moldova, and Ukraine. We know that there's uh, going to be action taken on Montenegro. There's already been action taken. But in addition, um, that has already been done in regards to Georgia, Moldova, and Ukraine, uh, what is expected in this uh, summit that will help those countries in their goal to become uh, our allies in NATO? In preparation for the summit, I'm concerned about the potential disputes that have emerged among member states. I was glad to work with the chairman on a resolution we just passed, uh, which emphasizes unity. I hope that other uh, legislatures across the alliance will consider passing similar measures uh, before the summit. Uh, public support expressed through its elected representatives is the best message that we can send as Russia attempts to erode the support for the alliance. One such measure that came from the Parliament of Montenegro last week was passed a resolution expressing strong support for NATO membership. Both of our witnesses today recently joined with 32 national security leaders on an important open letter calling on the administration to move forward with the ratification of the protocols for Montenegro. I agree with this letter. It is time for the administration to quickly send the protocols to the Senate for consideration. There is no reason for delay. I would close with a note of caution. As we look at the strategic and short-term threats that face the alliance, we can never stop the process of reexamining our assumptions. One of the reasons why a strong, agile, and flexible NATO is necessary for the 21st century is precisely because it is a critically important tool for shaping our relationship with Russia and so that we can build a constructive relationship with Russia that we all seek. We all seek to have a positive, constructive relationship with Russia. In my assessment, that's not possible now, given Russia's leadership, orientation, and behavior. Our goal is to seek to influence and change that behavior and to build a productive relationship. We're not looking for needless confrontation, and we should not take decisions which we would not allow us to change our course if Russia, Russia changes its course. Don't get me wrong. We must be tough and work to establish a legitimate deterrent to support our friends in Europe. But we also should be smart in, de in defining our long-term security interests of the United States. And I hope that this hearing we can have a, um, further uh, help as to how we can develop uh, those uh, goals. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much for those comments and uh, the way that you work with us on the committee. Our first witness is the Honorable Derek Chalet, serves as counselor and senior advisor on security and defense policy at the German Marshall Fund. Uh, from 2012 to 2015, Mr. Chalet was assistant, was U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, where he managed U.S. defense policy towards Europe, including NATO, the Middle East, Africa, and Western Hemisphere. Our second witness, Mr. Ian Bruschinski, currently serves as resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He has more than two decades of experience in U.S. national security matters having served on senior in senior policy positions at the U.S. Department of Defense and the U.S. Congress, including Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Europe and NATO policy from 2001 to 2005. We thank you both very much for being here. We thank you for your patience. Uh, we look forward to you summarizing your comments, and uh, without objection, your written testimony will be entered into the record. 
And if you would just begin in the order I introduced you, I'd appreciate it. Again, thank you for being here. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Cardin and members of the committee. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be back before you to talk about the priorities for the upcoming NATO Warsaw Summit. The summit next month comes at a critical time for the alliance, perhaps the most perilous moment in the 25 years since the end of the Cold War. With so many challenges testing the transatlantic partnership from the east to the south and indeed from within, Warsaw must be successful. And I very much commend the resolution that you passed earlier this morning, both on NATO as well as the resolution on Russia. I think those are important statements and I hope the full Senate would pass those uh, soon. Uh, so what would success at Warsaw look like? And I, I'll briefly discuss four priority areas. First, the Warsaw Summit needs to consolidate the reassurance measures that NATO has taken to shore up its eastern flank and to set a roadmap for what it can do in the future. Russia's aggression and reckless behavior has brought back serious questions about the credibility of NATO's deterrent. Since 2014, the U.S. and its partners have taken important steps to reassure our most vulnerable allies about our common commitment to their security. Now we must transition from reassurance to deterrence. Before the 2014 summit in Wales, NATO's actions were about crisis response. Today, the Alliance has taken meaningful steps towards sustained support. The U.S. has acted with a request to significantly boost its funding for the European Reassurance Initiative and by augmenting its force presence. Now, it's important to note that NATO allies have stepped up as well, uh, contributing more, a more credible deterrent force in the Baltics and Poland with a proposal for four battalions stationed in the east on track to be approved at Warsaw. There has also been considerable augmentation of our exercises and training in Europe as exemplified by the recent Anaconda exercise in Poland and the Baltops maritime exercise and enhanced NATO command and control in eight new small headquarters in the east. Second, the Alliance must also grapple with the threats from the South and the confluence of crises emanating from the Middle East and North Africa. Now, I don't think we can expect that this will ever become a NATO-only mission like Afghanistan, but NATO countries have a vital role to play. NATO has been training Iraqi forces in Jordan and appears close to conducting training in Iraq. Moreover, as Secretary of Defense Carter uh, mentioned last week uh, after the NATO Defense Ministerial, a decision will likely be taken at Warsaw to deploy such key NATO assets as AWACS aircraft to the anti-ISIL campaign. The Alliance also needs to continue to deepen its relationships with key partner countries in the region, and I welcome the announcement this week for Israel to open an office at NATO headquarters. Third, beyond these important military steps to enhance deterrence, the Alliance must reaffirm its open door. While the question of how much further NATO should enlarge will remain contentious within the Alliance, Montenegro's pending membership is a real opportunity to demonstrate a clear, continued commitment to the open door. And this is why, as Senator Carter mentioned earlier this week, I joined with over 30 of my former government colleagues, including my colleague to the right, uh, to sign an open uh, letter to the Obama administration and the U.S. Senate to ratify Montenegro's succession protocol as quickly as possible, ideally by the end of this year. But we must also be clear that this will not be a la the last word on the open door, and I believe it is imperative to continue to explore ways to deepen our cooperation with Georgia, as well as get more member states involved in helping Ukraine enhance its security and defense reform. And finally, and most important, yet perhaps most difficult, the Warsaw Summit must be a moment to galvanize support for the alliance among our publics. 
the kind of support necessary to make the required sacrifices, whether that is deploying troops or spending the necessary resources on defense. Indeed, it is fair to ask if NATO allies will not step up now, given all the threats that they face, when will they? Now, the U.S. is not immune from such pressures, and we've seen some question whether NATO is worth it. I think it's important to note that NATO continues to enjoy significant support among the American people. A recent poll by the Pew Research Center showed that 77% of Americans believe that being a member of NATO was a good thing for the U.S. I agree. Yet, in a climate of decreased budgets and increased demands globally, European members of the alliance will need to be seen as carrying their fair share of the burden. Now, although there has been some positive movement toward increased European spending since the 2014 summit in Wales, there is still reason to be concerned. Europe remains mired in its own internal struggles, whether from migration, the rise in populism, its enduring ec economic crisis, and the future of the EU itself, which only makes it harder for European leaders to think strategically and muster the political will for shared sacrifice. And depending on the outcome of today's vote on Brexit, this challenge may only become harder. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, these are just a few of the priorities for the upcoming summit. There are many other agenda items from boosting cyber defense to the enduring mission in Afghanistan to helping bring security to Libya that I would be happy to discuss with you further. Once again, I thank you for the opportunity to appear before you this morning, and I look forward to your questions. Go ahead, sir. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, it's a privilege to participate in this hearing addressing the challenges confronting the NATO alliance. NATO summit next month portends to be its most significant since the end of the Cold War. No previous summit in this era has, has had to address a set of challenges as complex, as proximate, and as forbidding as those now present on the alliance's eastern and southern frontiers. The most urgent of these challenges is the destabilizing combination of Russia's geopolitical assertiveness and growing military power. The decisions NATO promulgates in Warsaw must present a credible deterrent to Russian aggression, revitalize the vision of a Europe whole, free, and secure, and ensure that all allies share equitably in the burdens that flow from these objectives. These are three criteria by which to measure success or failure at the Warsaw Summit. Last winter, as you pointed out, the Alliance committed itself to establishing an enhanced forward presence in Central Europe and appears to be on track to deploy battalion-level units in each of the Baltic states and Poland. Battalions, roughly 800,000 troops, are small units when juxtaposed against the airborne, mechanized, and tank divisions deployed in Russia's western military district. This is an environment where the opponent's advantages include proximity, speed, and massed firepower. In order to be an effective deterrent, these NATO units must be able to survive for a limited amount of time amidst an intense attack. They will require reconnaissance and surveillance assets to mitigate the risk of surprise and air defense assets to enhance their survivability. They must have sufficient lethality to impose costs on an aggressor, even if the expectation is not to defeat that adversary. These units must bristle with anti-armor capabilities and perhaps even their own artillery and tanks. And here I'd urge you to look to the history of the Berlin Brigade because that was a highly armed forward deployed unit. The war plans that guide these units will have to be integrated with those of their host nations and that synchronization will have to be exercised regularly. The alliance has to be postured 
to reinforce in real time these forward-based battalions. Toward that end, NATO will need to conduct in the very near future brigade and division-level exercises to refine and demonstrate that capability. And NATO will need to delegate to its commanders the authorities necessary for them to marshal in real time the alliance's military assets in the event of provocation or aggression. There may be no time for North Atlantic Council deliberations. Moscow can be expected to closely observe the capability that accompanies NATO's new force posture. It will be very readily apparent whether or not this force is a steely reflection of Alliance commitment to its collective defense mission. A second critical issue that will define the Warsaw Summit is the Alliance's relationship with Ukraine, Georgia, and Moldova. The reinforcement of NATO's eastern frontier should be accompanied by a significant deepening of the Alliance's relationship with these nations, particularly Ukraine. This is an important requirement if we are to reanimate the vision of an undivided and secure Europe and erase the red line that Moscow has been allowed to draw across the continent. Toward these ends, NATO leaders at the Warsaw Summit should embrace Ukraine and Georgia's European and transatlantic aspirations. They should be given a clear roadmap to NATO membership, recognizing it will take time for them to meet the criteria of membership. The alliance should incorporate Georgia and Ukraine into the security initiatives it is developing to reinforce the Black Sea region. Their territories would be useful for anti-submarine, air defense, surveillance, and other operations useful to counter Russia's militarization of occupied Crimea. And the alliance should expand the security assistance it provides Ukraine. The time is long overdue to grant Ukraine the lethal defensive equipment it has requested, be it anti-tank, anti-air defense, anti-tank, anti air defense, and other weapons. None of these actions would threaten Russia's territorial integrity, but they would complicate Russian military planning and increase the risk that would come with further aggression. Nor are they inconsistent with an effort to normalize relations with Russia. In fact, these steps are necessary to prompt a de-escalation of tensions between Moscow and the West. And finally, our NATO allies must demonstrate commitment to share in all the burdens that come with addressing the full spectrum of challenges before the alliance. Washington has wisely reversed course on the mistaken withdrawal of U.S. combat capability from Europe. It deployed an armored brigade back to Europe. It's committed preposition and equipment set for a second armored brigade. And this is on top of two armored brigades and all the air and naval assets the U.S. has long stationed in Europe. Reports that allies are only able or willing to contribute three battalions to this effort, in contrast to our contribution, is disturbing. An absence of a robust West European force presence along NATO's eastern frontier risks transforming a demonstration of alliance resolve and determination into a reanimated and divisive burden-sharing issue. Mr. Chairman, Russia is, of course, not the only pressing challenge before the alliance, but the threat posed by Russia is distinctive for its urgency and its proximity, the scale of Russian conventional forces, and the risk of nuclear escalation. Presenting a unified and credible commitment to the Alliance's core defense mission and the vision of a Europe whole and free must stand at the top of the NATO agenda in Warsaw. This will require strong leadership from the United States, but success in this regard will ensure the vibrancy and relevancy of NATO, and most importantly, reinforce the prospects of peace. Thank you. Thank you both for your testimony. I'm going to reserve my time for interjections and defer to the ranking member. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank both our witnesses uh, for their contribution to this hearing. Uh, I do note, Mr. Chairman, that we do have the Montenegro ambassador with us today. It's well, welcome, Mr. Darmanovich. It's wonderful to have you here. Uh, I, I want to 
sort of focus in on the Russian issue for one moment, if I may, on the Eastern Front. And Russia, of course, uh, regularly performs um, military exercises uh, to show its force. Uh, my staff tells me that it included uh, 80,000 personnel, 12,000 pieces of heavy equipment, 65 warships, 15 submarines, 220 aircraft. Recently, uh, the uh, NATO conducted war games in Eastern Europe uh, last month that included 31,000 troops, much far less than what Russia does in its military exercise. And there were comments made by the German foreign minister uh, characterizing those exercises as warmongering. And Bulgaria refused to participate in NATO's fleet uh, in the Black Sea. So my question is, do we have unity here? Russia understands strength, and or do we have unity within NATO to recognize that Russia represents a th real threat uh, to, to NATO security? Senator, I, I can start with that. I, I think we do have unity, but I don't think we can just assume it. Uh, and I think the examples you cited uh, are, are very good because they, they do show that there's, there's politics in all these countries. Uh, and the Russians are playing uh, quite aggressively in all of these countries in the media markets and by funding opposition groups uh, to try to stir up these kinds of uh, reactions. I think it's just important to note that a lot of the, the, uh, the uh, measures that NATO has taken in the last two years since the Wales Summit that both uh, uh, Ian Brzezinski and I mentioned are were things we were not dreaming of three years ago. I mean, they were very much in response to Russia's aggression. The, the four brigades uh, that will, I think, be agreed to in Warsaw, the U.S. Uh, augmentation of our presence. Uh, for the first time, German troops uh, in, in Poland as part of the BJTF. So I think this is significant, but there is going to be an enduring question that we're going to face that Warsaw will not answer, that we're going to have to face moving forward of how much is enough to achieve deterrence. I don't think we'll ever, it's not realistic that we'll ever achieve uh, what, what you would call deterrence by denial, having equal amount of forces on either side of the border. And what, what uh, Defense Secretary Carter's talked about is the need to have a new kind of playbook, that, that what we're most worried about, and I'm sure we'll get into this later, is hybrid warfare, not a Russian invasion in Moss across the borders of uh, the Baltics or into Poland, but something that looks more like Ukraine, which is harder to figure out initially, and, but deeply destabilizing and, and very dangerous. Mr. Brzezinski, I want you to respond, but let, let me just add to at least my concern of what's happening between Russia and our NATO allies. When you look at Russia's activities in, of aggression in Ukraine, in Moldova, Georgia, they're intentionally causing an unrest supported by military that causes our NATO allies to say, gee, are these countries ready for membership in NATO? So in a way, NATO is encouraging Russia's aggression because if they continue their engagement, it's less likely that NATO will expand sooner uh, to more members. So. Is NATO aware of this? Does NATO recognize that countries such as Georgia that really want to become members of NATO, that they're falling into a Russian trap to be more aggressive because it means it's less likely they will get membership? 
Well, to answer your question, your last question, I would say I think there's general awareness, but also a unwillingness to recognize the reality that Russia uses a full-spectrum strategy to undermine the uh, preparedness of aspirant nations for NATO membership and to create division within the alliance and to create skepticism within the alliance about the readiness of those, those aspirants to get in. Uh, so there's no question that there's a hyper-dimension uh, to President Putin's um, strategy to fulfill his ambitions to recreate uh, Moscow's control over the former Soviet space. But with that said, I, I think it's important while we focus on the hybrid threat to also remember that Russia's strategy, Russia's strategy of hybrid warfare rests on a foundation of military power, of conventional and nuclear military power. That's what it falls back on. If you look at the invasion of Ukraine and, and go back to the invasion of Crimea, that was complemented by a massive 100 to 150,000 man exercise on, in the Western Military District along Ukraine's eastern frontier. And while we remember Crimea as a hybrid engagement because we had the little green men, we often forget that soon after those little green men started their operations, they were followed by 20 to 30,000 Russian special forces. So that event was actually pretty conventional. That's an important point to, remem to remember. M my fear is that, uh, on your point about unity, is that while we do have some unity, I'm not sure we have sufficient unity. Mm. That's kind of reflected in the debate in the e we've seen recently in the EU over the sanctions to Russia. Yes, the EU is on course to, to extend those sanctions by six months, but you can see an increasing debate between the West Europeans and the Central Europeans on this. And that, to me, is disconcerting. Look at the difficulty the alliance has had in generating the forces for its forward enhanced presence. I mean, the fact that we could only get two European nations to come up with two battalions, to me, is disturbing. The forward enhanced presence was meant to extend from Central Europe and the Baltic Sea all the way down to the Black Sea with Romania and Bulgaria. We're not getting a forward enhanced presence in Romania and Bulgaria because we, couldn't, we don't have allies who have the will or the capability to come up with those, with those battalions. That's, that's disturbing. And then finally, sir, on your point on exercises, not only are they massive, but uh, the Russian exercise has been massive, but there have also been snap exercises that I think are disturbing. Why? Because they demonstrate the Russians' ability to mobilize rapidly large amounts of force and to deploy them very rapidly. Uh, we haven't done a NATO snap exercise since the end of the Cold War. Mm. I don't think NATO commanders have the authorities to even do a snap exercise. That is something that has to be changed. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. If I could follow up, I'm going to have my first interjection. Um, on the unity issue, I, I certainly, you know, we, we go to the Munich Security Conference each year. We obviously have great friendship with Germany, a lot of investment in our country uh, by German entities, so, you know, good relationship. I will tell you, um, the fact that Germany, the powerhouse of Europe, the driver of European policy spends 1.18% of their GDP on NATO. I find it to be highly offensive. And you know, when you look at the fact, we have, we have just under 40,000 troops, U.S. troops based in Germany. So if you're sitting there 
And the United States has 40,000 troops in your country. You have no concerns. Um, and, by the way, the majority of people in Germany believe that they should not be part of an Article 5 protection for other NATO countries. So, I mean, I would like greater explanation as to the fact that we really have unity. I mean, in essence, we are the provider of security services. They are the consumer of security services. We have 40,000 troops on the ground in Germany, and they can't even contribute uh, the 2 percent of GDP, the economic powerhouse of Europe, I got to tell you, I find that offensive. And I'd just like for you all to respond as to how we uh, push these countries. Most experts don't believe they're going to get to 2 percent anytime soon. I think you all would agree with that. So how do, we, how do we deal with this? And, by the way, maybe one of the moderating forces uh, that keeps uh, these sanctions from continuing to go in place on the second round. I don't know if that's true or not, but we'll see. The second part, uh, I said maybe that's not true. The rest of it, if you'd respond to it, I'd appreciate it. Well, Senator, I, I share your frustration on defense spending in Europe, in Germany specifically, but more broadly among all but five of the members, and really one of those five is Greece, which that's a different story in terms of why they're That's because their economy exploded, and all of a sudden the numerator and their it's a jobs denominator program, work. That's right. That's right. So, uh, and, and, and we've had the same conversations, I'm sure you, you and I, when I was in government, now that I'm out of government with our German colleagues. Uh, I think it's important to note in the specific case of Germany, obviously, they have their own difficult history that, they're, that they grapple with when it comes to questions of their military. It was only 20-some years ago that Germany deployed its military outside of Germany for the first time since World War II, which was in the Balkans. And Germany's been a partner of ours in Afghanistan for, for 10 plus years. And there you have a very active defense minister, who I know you know, who's trying very hard to push that bureaucracy and push uh, the German parliament to spend more on defense, modernize its capabilities. And that's a good thing. So we want to encourage that, because there are forces within Germany who want what we want, which is greater capability, a Germany that's more willing to project its power militarily. But we're not there yet, and, and there are counterforces, some of those counterforces aided and abetted by the Russians uh, to push back on those, on those efforts. I think we have to share our, our realism uh, about, the, about the, uh, oper the odds of having all of the alliance get to 2%. Um, but I think we, nevertheless, we have to keep pressing this very, very hard. Ultimately, it's going to be a political decision, and that's one of the frustrations I certainly had in government because defense ministers and security experts would get together and everyone would agree vigorously that we, they need to spend more on defense, but then they would go back to their capitals and get shouted down by their finance ministers and others. So it's just a fight yeah. we need to keep fighting. Yeah. Well, we have 40,000 troops in their country. They feel no threat. They feel no threat. They're living off of us. And I just find it offensive. And, and, and again, I, I, I could see some of the other countries that have had difficulties. Uh, Germany, with them being the leading entity in the European Union right now, I, I just find it more than offensive. And uh, it's a lot of rhetoric. The action is not there. You say bureaucracy. It's a vote. It's a vote of their parliament. And the majority of the people there do not believe they should respond in protection of other folks. I just think they've got a lot of work to do. And uh, I'm going to keep hammering on this. They're being laggards. They are laggards as it relates to NATO, laggards. And uh, I just don't think we're strong enough 
in our discussions with them. Senator Murphy. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Um, thank you for both being here. So uh, NATO is an alliance not to counter Russian aggression. It's an alliance to counter all threats, all aggression. In fact, the only time that Article 5 has been operationalized is in defense of an attack against the United States by al-Qaeda. So here's just a simple question. We spend all of our time talking about Russia. What's the greater threat to NATO today? Is it Russia or is it uh, ISIL and Islamic extremism? Senator, I'd say without question, it's, it's Russia, because Russia has the force buildup on, on the alliance's eastern frontier. It's demonstrated state-on-state -state aggression. Uh, it's invaded two countries in the last decade, Ukraine and Georgia. It continues to occupy part of Moldova. It's, if you look at uh, the pattern of Russian military provocations, they've become more brazen and more risky over the last two years. It has not been steady state. It has steadily escalated and become more confrontational. I'm not talking just about the Donald Cook being buzzed by, air, by aircraft. I'm talking about snap exercises in which they simulate the seizure of all the islands of the Baltic Sea. Uh, I'm talking about nuclear threats and exercises they conduct that involve the integration of nuclear and conventional op operations. So yes, ISIL is chaos. It's horrible. Um, the violence in there is into the south is disturbing, but I don't think it presents the same level, same existential threat that Putin's provocations and his, his geopolitical aspirations present the alliance. So I, I think that's a very interesting answer. So as you look out over the next 24-month time horizon, you, or you pick your time horizon, 24 months, five years, you think it's more likely that you are going to have a Russian attack inside the NATO alliance than it is to have a large-scale or series of large-scale um, uh, ISIL attacks? That's a slightly different way of, answering the, of asking the question, but it's more specific. I mean, you, you think there's a greater threat of Russia moving across the border of NATO um, uh, than there is uh, of major uh, attacks from uh, violent extremist groups? No, um, I would say that there's a more like we're almost guaranteed, almost certain to have some sort of terrorist attack against a NATO ally by, by ISIL. Um, and that's certainly a higher probability than a Russian maneuver to seize Warsaw or Berlin, much higher. But what I'm worried about is the buildup that Russia has on its eastern, on its western frontier, the provocative nation, nature of its, of its military operations that increases the likelihood of inadvertent conflict. And we had a small taste of it in south of Turkey. And I think we were very lucky that that engagement between the Turkish Air Force and the Russian Air Force occurred against a Russian force that was on an expeditionary operation and not well defended. It could have been a whole different ballgame if that had happened in a highly militarized area such as the Baltic area. So I'm not worried about an, an intentional attack against NATO. I don't think that's in Putin's plans, but I am worried that his activities do raise or increase the risks of inadvertent conflict with all the escalatory dynamics that would come with it. Uh, Mr. Chile, I think it's an interesting answer. I don't, I don't have it, but I think that, um, well, tell me what your yeah, thoughts. Yeah, well, I mean, my, my, my take is, uh, while completely agreeing with the threat that Russia poses, I think the answer is, to your question is, it's really both. And, and, you know, one of the challenges, getting back to this question of unity that we have within the alliance, is, is a growing divide between those countries who are most exposed to the threat to the east and those countries who are most exposed to the threat to the south. Uh, 
Uh, and, and from a U.S. perspective, I really think when we look at our interest in a transatlantic uh, relationship that's strong and a Europe that is whole, free, and at peace, it really has to be both. And that's why, as I said in my statement, the Warsaw Summit has to show meaningful steps that, that the alliance is addressing threats from both the South and the East. One of the challenges NATO has is when it, we look at the tools of the alliance, they're, they're actually better, better for the challenges of the East in deterring Russia than they are to the South. And one of the, one of the things NATO has struggled with is how actually to get to, to, to address this, the threats to the South. And some of that is, is by actually acting within the Middle East, as I mentioned earlier, in Jordan or Iraq, or contributing uh, uh, capability to the anti-ISIL fight. Some of that is maritime mission, which NATO's involved in now, to help uh, with the migrants coming up through the sea. But that's going to be a real challenge for the leaders when they get together, is how they show a signal of resolve to the east, but then also determination to deal with the threats to the south. I, I, I thank you both for that, uh, that answer. I agree it's both. But uh, we have major challenges with the Europeans today with respect to their counterterrorism um, surveillance and intelligence operations, right? They see those questions about how they work together to try to catch bad guys within Europe as a question that is large, that is often separate from the conversation about the future of NATO. And so I, I would, I don't disagree with almost any of the recommendations that you've made vis-a-vis -vis the threat from the East, but I would hope that part of the discussions about the future of NATO is standing up a truly continent-wide counterterrorism capability that is fully integrated with ours that is seen as part and parcel of our mission um, under the umbrella of NATO. If it's viewed that way, I think it's much more likely that some of the tough decisions that are necessary will actually get made. I think you're right that it's both, but I think we tend to spend almost all of our time thinking about NATO through the prism of the Russian threat when we might be able to get more done on the counter-ISIL threat if it was viewed through this construct. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. All right, Senator Garg. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Kane. I thank you very much for that. I appreciate that. Um, and thank you to the two witnesses for your time and testimony today. A couple of weeks ago, we had a, a hearing with uh, Deputy Defense Secretary Carpenter uh, talking about a number of issues. Uh, I asked him about the RAND study that came out about four or five months ago that stated that Russian forces could overrun NATO's Baltic states in less than three days. Uh, and uh, Defense Secretary, uh, Deputy Secretary Carter, Carpenter, excuse me, basically said, yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, General Hodges, yesterday, I think it was reported, uh, made statements that uh, Russia could overrun the Baltic states within 36 to 60 hours. Uh, Carpenter mentioned, Mr. Carpenter mentioned that there were some studies and analysis that they had conducted at the Department of Defense. Are you familiar, either of you familiar with the studies or analysis that the Defense Department has done along the lines of the RAND studies? Uh, Senator, I'm aware that they were doing those studies, but I wasn't a participant in okay, it. Okay, but any, any, you haven't had a conversation with them to see what exactly well, and where the analysis no, is my, with RAND. My understanding is, I think, uh, Secretary Carpenter mentioned to you, it's, 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 it's not different than what outside groups, RAND and others, have been doing to try to uh, do tabletop exercises to run scenarios about what that would look like. Yeah. We spent a lot of time in Europe recently talking about sort of the muscle memory of what it means to protect Europe, to fight a war in Europe. We talked about uh, as our, uh, our focus has turned to the Middle East and intelligence needs in the Middle East and terrorism, the intelligence loss that we've had in Europe when it comes to Russia. Would either of you like to expand on that and what we're doing to fill the gap when it comes to our sort of blind spots in intelligence in Europe? 
when it comes to intelligence, I think what's happened is that m most of the intelligence assets that we used to deploy against the Soviet Union to a certain time against Russia had been redeployed to the South, probably rightfully so, but it's left us with our eyes sort of half closed. And as a result, we're not really as aware of Russian movements as we were, so to speak, during the Cold War against the Soviet Union. So some of these SNAP exercises have been disturbing to me because they've occurred with catching largely UCOM and our NATO allies off guard. So for example, I was in Poland uh, a year and a half ago when there was an exercise in Kaliningrad, uh, that enclave between Lithuania and, and, and Poland. It involved 10,000 troops, 50 ships, 250 APCs. We were caught surprised. The exercise I mentioned about um, about a year ago in which they simulated the seizure, the Russians did a 40,000 man, 40 to 50,000 man exercise simulating the seizure, parts of northern Norway, but also the islands of Åland of Finland, Gotland of Sweden, and as far west as Bornholm of Denmark. Uh, it was a su surprise to us. That's why I mentioned in my testimony the importance of bringing I increased ISR capabilities, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities for these four deployed forces because it's going to be essential to give them as much time as possible to hunker down uh, in light of the Russians' ability to leverage proximity uh, for surprise. And do you see this, I mean, oh, sorry, go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, Senator, just, just briefly, I, I, I concur uh, completely that we've lost, we lost a lot of muscle memory in the 25 years since the end of the Cold War that we are slowly trying to build back. Intelligence is a key gap. Uh, one of the things I, I hope will be agreed to in Warsaw is a decision by NATO to create a new senior leadership position within the alliance and assistant secretary general for intelligence, which can help bring together the various pieces of intelligence capability NATO does have, but, but more importantly, try to augment that over time. That's a U.S. proposed initiative, so I'm, I'm hopeful that at Warsaw we'll see some success there. And so of the $3.4 billion that we have in the FY17 budget for the European Reassurance Initiative, how much of that can address this need? Is that enough? Is it working? That, that money is, is largely allocated for, for forces. There is some, a sliver of some funding for ISR in, in there, but probably not enough to address the requirements. And it can't just be U.S. ISR. It has to also be, as the chairman's mentioned, it's got to be European ISR. They have to make those investments, too. And do you see any movement that they are beginning? I mean, when we talk about the need to fulfill their obligation to NATO and the funding, do you see any movement on ISR and others? There, there is. And, you, you know, there's Europe. some good news over the last two years, and, and Derek deserves some, some um, commendation for that, is that spending is actually reversed. It's, it's downward trend. It's now upward in, in Europe. Secretary General came out, uh, I guess, a week or two ago and said that of NATO allies, 20 of them in 2016 are spending more money than did last year. And the overall, it's about a point and a half up. Not enough, not fast enough, but at least going in the right direction. And some of that investment is going into ISR. Just, just to add to that, it, the 2% uh, GDP metric is one that we talk about the most, but within that is an agreement to spend 20% of, your, of your, your new money on modernization, of which ISR is the central part. And that's actually a better story than the 2%. So even though we're not where we need to be, uh, even close to that, on the 2%, we're actually looking all right on the 20% across the alliance. If I could add, if it was a second uh, key area that has to be a focus on how money is spent, it's to increase the readiness of the force pool in Europe. Mm -hmm. The force pool has degraded over the last decade and a half significantly. 
and the ready forces that the Europeans have are now stretched thin with the operations they have, be it in Afghanistan or, or, in Afghanistan or in Africa. And my concern is that as a result, the Europeans may not be as ready as we would like them to be to be able to rapidly mobilize and deploy battalion or brigade level assets to, to the east to reinforce NATO's re enhanced forward presence once it up amidst a crisis. That is a real concern, the readiness pool of European forces. Now, uh, Mr. Chairman, I'm sorry, do you have, mind if one more question? So I, I know, I think you talked about this uh, when I was trying to smack in, to smash in other hearings today, in between those hearings, um, the Brexit vote that's taking place. Uh, obviously, they would stay and remain in NATO, but what impact do you see that having, should they leave the European Union, if any at all, on NATO? Well, I, I think there is no question that it would, because, of the, because if they were to choose to leave the European Union, it will mean the next, for the next several years, Europe will yet have another existential question before it, and unfortunately will mean less bandwidth for all of what we're talking about this morning. Because political leaders, publics, will be consumed by the future of the EU project, and therefore have less energy to deal with the issues that we've been talking about uh, today. Now, oddly, it may make NATO more important, and it may help the Brits, oddly enough, to want to be closer to NATO to show that they're still part of an alliance. Uh, so it ch could change the incentives that way. But I, I think it's very hard uh, to see this as anything but negative for uh, our security interests in Europe. I agree completely with Derek. I, I just had another dimension. An EU that is minus the UK is likely to be a le slightly less transatlantic-oriented EU. It's going to be a slightly weaker EU. Uh, it's going to be probably a little bit more divisive EU, but most importantly, from NATO's perspective, it's going to be less of an Atlanticist EU. And to have a community of nations like that who make up much of NATO, to have that Atlanticist orientation diluted cannot be a net gain for, for the alliance. It's actually a net loss. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to the witnesses. Um, my perception, and you know, I think one of the virtues and vices of this committee is you kind of really dive into the regions where you're assigned, and my committee's more Middle East and Latin America, so I'm always fascinated by these hearings about Europe because I really learn, and I'm, I'm going to have you educate me a bit. But my perception as an educated layperson watching the Russian situation is that the um, economy is horrible, and Putin is the kind of leader that when there's threats because things aren't going well internally, he's a little more likely to be externally adventurous. There are elections coming up in September, legislative elections in Russia. Are you at all worried that, that the next you know, 90 days might be a period where there might be a little more likelihood of something being a little nutty on the, uh, on the uh, adventurism side from Russia, on an aggressive side because of you know, the need to try to gain uh, torque in this electoral campaign, or does the election look fairly set right now and they wouldn't need to worry about that? Very briefly, I'm, I'm sure we agree on this. The answer is yes. I'm, I'm worried, and it's not just the election, it's actually how NATO, or how Russia responds to the Warsaw mm -hmm. Summit, because mm -hmm. if, if we, we succeed in having the Warsaw Summit be a, a show of unity, a, a demonstration that the NATO has resolved, an augmentation of the deterrent, Putin <clears throat> may feel the need to respond in some way, to show that he's still 
you know, willing to do, do what it takes. And so I think we absolutely are, it's already a pretty perilous period, but I think given the summit, given their elections, given perhaps an EU that's, that's mired in an existential crisis about Brexit, I think it is an opportunity for Russia's adventurism to come back. I guess slightly agree, but another angle to look at it also is that one of his objects, well, first, I don't think his election is much in doubt, mm -hmm. uh, or the election outcomes are much in doubt. He's actually got a pretty good grip on the polity there and the electoral dynamics. It's really not even an election, it's, it's, it's a re-coronation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, second, um, actually the economy is kind of going in his direction with a slight incre increment in, in, in gas prices. That takes a little bit of off, a little of the economic pressure off of him. But I do think that he'll be looking at how to discredit the alliance's decisions uh, at Warsaw and will be doing what he can to undermine the credibility, at least the perceived credibility, of NATO's force posture decisions. And that leaves me concerned. And certainly, as, as Derek pointed out, he will try and exploit any divisions within the alliance that flow from, from Brexit or a division with the alliance over how much support to provide Ukraine. Mm -hmm. he may, what my, my big fear is that he will interpret a reinforcement of NATO's eastern frontier with, a, in, with no change in the NATO-Ukraine relationship as basically a green light to press further on into Ukraine. Let me ask a question so that I'll sound smarter at my next Armed Services Committee hearing. Um, on, at that committee, I'm always digging into our folks over cyber issues. I don't really think we've got a clearly articulated cyber doctrine in this country in terms of, you know, what is, what is deterrence? Uh, do we have a publicly announced posture of doing X if somebody does Y? And if you don't have a publicly announced posture, you don't have a deterrence doctrine. I think all kinds of questions, what does it mean to be, quote, under attack? What is war in the cyber domain? I don't really think we've answered those things. But Russia has been pretty darn effective. They conducted cyber war against, uh, d during conflicts in Georgia and Ukraine. They had a role in sponsoring a statewide cyber attack in Estonia in 07. The Estonians didn't invoke Article 5 because of perceived lack of support from NATO allies. At the time, NATO was not sure were they, quote, under attack. If they were, quote, under attack, was it a Kremlin-induced attack? And so there's a lot of paralysis slash analysis going on. This summit, is supposed to have NATO designating cyber as a fifth domain of warfare. But I would like your, your all's thoughts about as we're going into NATO, what should we be trying to achieve in Warsaw with respect to A, cyber being a fifth domain of warfare, but B, really trying to hammer down on doctrine because the NATO nations have a combined capacity that's massive. Russia's got a capacity. They're, they, they're good at this and they use it. We have a combined capacity. I'm not sure we're harnessing it, and I think we're somewhat paralyzed about how to use it, and I would love your thoughts about that. You're absolutely right that um, Russia and other adversaries are much more sophisticated, much more experienced in the use of cyber uh, as an element of hybrid multifaceted strategies to pursue their aggressions. You know, you could have mentioned also the cyber attack against Estonia being the first large-scale cyber attack that I'm aware of. It is good that NATO is moving forward with the development of a doctrine uh, to guide cy the cyber dimension of its operations. Uh, I think it's good as a cyber center. Uh, we have to incorporate this dimension of warfare into NATO operations. With that said, I think for the foreseeable future, 
cyber activities are really going to be in the realm of NATO member states rather than the alliance as a whole. Uh, just as the way we have tank divisions that are U.S. divisions that are allocated to, uh, to NATO operation, cyber operations aren't probably going to be conducted out of the NATO headquarters in Brussels for a number of reasons. NATO won't for a long while have the personnel necessary for that. It won't have the computer setups for, for that. And it probably won't come to full agreement on exactly what to do. I'm not too worried about that because in, during the Cold War, we had lots of elements of a comprehensive Western strategy of which NATO was a part to deal with that threat. That will be the likely direction cyber warfare plays in the West's response to, th to the threats, for example, from, from Russia. It will remain primarily dominion of a, na of a national armed force rather than the alliance. It won't be like AWACS. It will be more like a national contribution to an alliance operation. Very briefly, and I concur with all of that, uh, last week at the Defense Ministerial, they announced that, that cyber would become an operational domain. They said that cyber, a cyber attack can be considered an Article 5 attack. Uh, that will help within NATO for better coordination, for better planning, for greater management of resources, and that's all good. But I think the caveat that Ian has mentioned is very important, which is this will probably remain mainly in, a in the national realm. However, this is also an area where NATO-EU cooperation could be important, and, and particularly when we think of resilience. So when there is an attack, it's one thing to understand what's happened and respond to it in some way, but then there's also the resilience, getting the systems back online. And I think this is an area where NATO could f explore that further. And since it's not a purely military answer, it's something that involves uh, uh, you know, other realms where it may, may be more appropriately done in the EU context, it's where NATO and the EU can work together, which is yet further reason why we don't want the EU mired in another crisis for the next two years. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, let me first uh, draw a premise for my questions to understand where I'm coming from. So of NATO's 28 member states, only five uh, are meeting or exceeding the 2% GDP defense spending uh, for support of the alliance, which leaves the United States spending about 75% of the military spending for all NATO members. Uh, at the last summit in Wales, 28 members agreed on three main outcomes, enhancing readiness and collective defense in response to Russian aggression, increasing defense spending and boosting military capabilities, and third, boosting NATO support for partner countries outside the alliance. And these main outcomes were a recognition of several driving forces. First, Putin had already gained control, from my perspective, a narrative and successful international intervention in Georgia, was in the process of repeating this in the Ukraine. And second, fear in Europe uh, among our friends and our allies alike that commitments uh, are not necessarily always going to be steadfast, as is exhibited in the context of Ukraine, where our commitments were enshrined in the Budapest Agreement, uh, a memorandum. So my question is, and, and in fact, it wasn't until Congress passed strong new sanctions legislation against Russia that Putin had any indication that the United States would be an obstacle to his ambitions, either personal or nationalistic. So in my view, the U.S. and NATO, by extension, should be Yes, thinking about what Putin's reaction will be, but more focus on registering what, Putin, what NATO will not tolerate at the end of the day. In essence, uh, how do we go from merely defense 
to deterrence because when we have seen actions taken, all right, Ukraine was not a NATO member, uh, but uh, I get concerned that the messages being sent is that what we will do in response to Russian aggression uh, is signaling to the Russians that they can be more and more aggressive in Putin's grand design. So what is it that NATO needs to do to move from just defense, which is important, but also to a sense, a more muscular sense of deterrence? Uh, how do we ultimately uh, prepare, how does NATO prepare for the uh, out of the norm actions of a uh, irregular uh, military action as we saw in the Ukraine? Uh, and what's our comprehensive uh, abilities uh, to deal with that? Uh, those are some of my, my key concerns, because if we're doing 75%, we want everybody to step up, uh, but in the interim, Russia feels that it can continue to make these incursions without real consequences, uh, other than some sanctions, which are important. Uh, you know, I was one of those who tried to lead on that, but it just seems to me that NATO needs to have both in its defense posture, through its diplomacy, through a whole host of things, a more robust uh, sense of deterrence, not just simply defense. Could you speak to that? Sure, Senator, I can take the first crack. Uh, I completely agree with you that we need to move uh, into a strong deterrence mode uh, right now. I think there are multiple components of that. Uh, one is, it starts with presence and posture. Uh, being in particular those most vulnerable states, particularly in Poland and the Balts, is very important. There's going to be a question on numbers, as Ian has raised, whether we have enough there. But it's very important that those forces are war-fighting forces. They are forces that, that can get into the fight in hours, not days or weeks. They are forces that have the capability, both in terms of uh, the lethal capability, but also the ISR and the resupply. Uh, to be able to be in that fight. Uh, they need air defense as well. Uh, so I think that's very, very important. Secondly, planning. And that's not present right now. No, it's not. Well, the idea, hopefully, in, at, in Warsaw, there will be a decision to ensure that that is present. And mm. some of that is also what the, the quadrupling of U.S. defense spending in Europe is going to be towards as well. So uh, it's not present now. Uh, it needs to be, and hopefully in Warsaw we'll have good news. Second is planning. We need to do greater planning. Uh, for all sorts of contingencies in Europe, that planning was the other uh, thing that had atrophied in the 20 years since the end of the Cold War. And the U.S. is doing its own planning, but also it needs to be NATO planning for uh, various contingencies, uh, uh, some of which you, you, you discussed. And then third is procedure, ensuring that military authorities and the, the political leaders in Brussels have the right procedures in place to be able to make quick decisions. And I know that's a very difficult issue to get at because it, it's about ultimately political control and how much you want to pre-delegate to military leaders. There's been some modest progress over the last several years in that realm, but I think it's something we need to explore further at Warsaw. Yeah, you asked your ultimate question about deterrence. and. I was listening to Derek, and I agree with him, everything he says. And I think what I would add is that the key element of deterrence is your ability to exhibit, demonstrate steely determination. And in the case of Russia, I don't think the West has exhibited steely determination 
against the aggression and provocative actions it's taken. When Russia invaded Ukraine, we should have immediately mobilized and moved forces out to the Baltics and to Poland and to the Black Sea. Uh, we should have imposed immediately much harsher sanctions. Sanctions that would have had some blowback, blow but that would have exhibited in itself determination to leverage that dimension uh, to impose cost on, on the aggressor. The problem with, with the West's policy over the last two, three years in response to Russia is that we've had an incrementalist approach, slowly trying to ratchet up our, our presence levels and our sanctions. We went through several iterations of sanctions, and I would argue they're not even as powerful as they could be. They should be sectoral sanctions. We have deployed largely U.S. company-level elements to Central Europe, uh, not battalions, not brigades, elements that the Russians knew they could overrun any time. Uh, with Ukraine, our assistance has been half-hearted. They've been begging for lethal assistance for two years. The West still balks on that. Uh, this communicates a lack of resolve to the Russians and gives someone like Putin a feeling that he can continue to push on. So decisiveness and speed in leveraging our advantages, which in our, in our case, I believe, is the respect that even the Russian general staff has for U.S. forces, using our economic leverage. We have like a, a 15 to 2 economic advantage in terms of GDP of the United States and, 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 and Europe against Russia, $30 trillion versus $2 trillion. We're not leveraging that quickly. We should have used it, leveraged it immediately. That kind of speed of response reflects determination and I think what would have registered more profoundly within Moscow's decision-making circles. And as a result, if we had done that, we probably wouldn't be as in the deep of mire as we are today. Well, I will just close by saying this. The sooner we exhibit that steely determination, the better off we will collectively be. Thank you very much. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for being here. I, I, before I get into my questions, I wanted to just follow up on that comment, Mr. Brzezinski, because um, I don't disagree with what you're saying. I think um, steady, um, quick resolve is very important. But how, how would you have suggested we should have dealt with the Europeans who were reluctant on the lethal weapons issue? I mean, listening to the French and the Germans um, talk about their response on um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they were very reluctant. Are you suggesting that we should have gone ahead and provided those weapons despite the concerns of the Europeans? Uh, yes. Uh, you know, the problem with um, seeking complete unity sometimes means you're diluting the effect of your response. So sometimes you have to break out of the unity, the 100% unity you seek, and go with coalitions that be willing to do it. And I believe, it's my assessment, that we would have had a number of Europeans who had been willing to work with us to arm the Ukrainians from, 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 from the start. And we should have done that. And I think the rest would have followed. Um, let me thank you both for your open letter in support of Montenegro's accession to NATO. And can you talk a little bit, both of you, about what you see are the benefits of their joining NATO and whether this sends any kind of a message to the Russians that's helpful? Uh, Senator, I, I think that uh, 
Montenegro uh, has been a partner of ours for, for many years. They've contributed to NATO missions. They've worked alongside the United States military in difficult places. Uh, they are a key player within the Balkans, and the Balkans, as you know very well, is a region that is still struggling, and I, and I think having uh, another member of NATO from that region would be very important. And Montenegro, over the past several years, and when I was in government, worked very closely with their defense minister and other senior uh, folks, uh, has, has made great strides in addressing some of the concerns that the United States and others had about their readiness to be, to be a full member of NATO, and they deserve uh, great credit, and the parliament just in the last week has has, uh, has yet again endorsed their their entry into NATO. So I, I think that uh, you know we, we one cannot overstate uh, what what Montenegro will do to our bring to our collective defense. But I think certainly having it a mem having it part of the member uh, states, and as well as the signal it sends to other aspirant countries, and also to to to. Russia and others who may want to have a veto over what NATO may do is very, very important uh, for the Warsaw Summit. If we had had more time before Wales, I think we might have been able to get it done before the Wales Summit. Uh, but I'm, that's why I'm very glad and very hopeful that, that it will be done uh, this year if the administration can get the paperwork up to you all and hopefully the Senate could be able to act before the end of the year. Thank you. Um, I want to pick up on Senator Kane's comments about cyber because I certainly agree with him that we don't seem to have a, a uniform strategy around our response on cyber. And I had the opportunity to visit Estonia back in March and see the Cyber Center of Excellence there that's been accredited by NATO and was very impressed with the kinds of work that they're doing and the research that I think then is available to all of the NATO members. So can you, can you talk about how important that kind of a center is to um, developing the capacity that NATO needs as they're looking at the challenges they're facing today compared to, say, 20 or 30 years ago? I think it's very important, and I commend the, the Estonians for taking the leadership on this position. Uh, there have been some of the most adept at uh, leveraging the commercial and social capabilities that come with uh, the internet and other elements of cyber. Uh, yes, it's important to have a center of excellence. It's important for NATO to give emphasis, um, as it is now, through its involving doctrine, its designation it as an element of, of, of warfare, because that will help ensure a continuity and consistency and a synchronization of national efforts in the cyber domain. Uh, this is important because it's very easy for different nations to start pursuing approaches to cyber in different ways, in large part because this is some of the most secretive dimensions of, of, of warfare. Uh, it's very unlikely that I think that everyone in NATO is going to have the same outlook and also right. same capacities and same com capabilities in, in, in the cyber domain, simply because it's, it's no longer uh, it's not a bullet, it's not a, it's not a rifle, it's something that is, gets into the super secret. Uh, and it, you know, it's, it's black ops and, and that sort of thing. So with that said, I'll just reiterate what I said earlier, which is that it's important that NATO do this, it needs to drive forward. The more consistent and continuity, the more shared capability we have across the alliance, the better. But it's most likely that this is going to re remain primarily, the most edgy stuff is most, it's going to remain within the national domains. Well, and I think that was clear um, as the result of what I saw there at the center. But 
Um, but the, the fact that they're doing work that can then be shared with other countries within NATO seems to me one of the really important aspects of what NATO can provide on the cyber issue. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you very much. Just to follow up on uh, Senator Shaheen's comment relative to lethal weaponry to Ukraine, I'd just be interested, uh, Mr. Shalaya, in your response to that. Does it matter now? Uh, in some ways, although I will say 30, 35 Ukrainians died last month, 40,000 troops are amassed, uh, both regular and irregular, in eastern Ukraine. They're killing Ukrainians, and I just uh, uh, would love to hear what your response to that would be. Sure. Other differing opinions. Happy to, Senator. Well, I was, when I served in the government, I was for lethal assistance to Ukraine. Uh, but I also do think it's important to put it in context. Uh, we, the United States has provided around $600 million in security assistance to Ukraine since 2014. That's compared to about $10 million or so that we gave to Ukraine in 2013. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty significant right. uptick. And that's going to training and reforming right. the Ukrainian military, which needs a lot of help. It's not going to lethal assistance. Right. Uh, and, and we support that effort, but the we, lethal weaponry. Uh, understood, yeah, and that's why when I served in government, now that I'm out of government and able to, to speak for myself, uh, yeah. I support lethal assistance. I know that President Poroshenko will be attending the Warsaw Summit, and there will be a, a meeting with him uh, with, the, with the North Atlantic Alliance there, and that's very important. NATO's made some decisions to augment its own effort to help reform the Ukrainian military. It's very important for us to have the Ukrainian military get up to NATO standards for a lot of reasons, because it makes it easier to partner, but also it helps their professionalization and to deal with the, the corruption problems the Ukrainian military has as well. Uh, but I, so I think that's all very, very important. And I, I still actually think the lethal assistance issue is still relevant today. And, and you know, I'm hoping my, my former colleagues in government are still taking a close look at that. Well, um, you know, there's an election taking place, and, you know, things may, may change in January. I do want to acknowledge, as the ranking member did, the ambassador from Montenegro. He sat expressionless when y'all were talking about his ascension to NATO. I thought he would smile, but he didn't. Now he is smiling. Um, I uh, want to thank you both for your testimony, and I just will say this. I think that all of us, I mean, everybody on this committee knows the importance of NATO. Uh, we... I think, I think one of the greatest threats to NATO is when people begin to realize that maybe it's not a true alliance. And I just hope that in Warsaw there's some commitment by, especially by our European partners. I mean, I think everybody understands we are very committed. We're more than committed. But I have to tell you, it is so frustrating. Um, we've been talking about that Madeleine Albright was here, what, four years ago talking about this and was concerned about it when she was Secretary of State. And it just doesn't change. And it's almost like we want it to be in a, a strong alliance so badly. Uh, we continue pushing, and I appreciate what you mentioned about the 20% going to upgrading, and obviously you can spend 2% and it all be on salaries and take you nowhere, and I think the qualitative changes are important, and I applaud those. But I just hope that our member, our NATO friends, realize the frustration that's mounting as we deal with our own economic issues, as we deal with our own indebtedness, uh, and the, the realization more and more by people that 
most of the countries are not pulling their load and they depend so heavily upon us on the other hand for their security so anyway uh, we thank you all for highlighting the many things you did today your outstanding witnesses thank you for your service to our country and i don't know if our ranking member wants to close with anything now, just to join you again uh, i thank both our witnesses for their contributions and uh, i think the point that you've made mr chairman is shared uh, nato is extremely important uh, but it is an alliance, and if it doesn't act as an alliance, if there isn't a shared commitment, uh, then it's not as strong as it needs to be. And the challenges today are on two fronts. There are more than two fronts, but two major fronts, both of which are extremely serious, uh, Russia and terrorism. And uh, they need, the alliance needs to be as strong as it must be, and it is not at its full potential, and it's got to improve. Thank you. Um, if you could, um, the record be open until the close of Business Friday. I know you all have done this before, and if you could answer fairly promptly any written questions that come in. Thank you again for your patience on the front end and uh, for sharing your wisdom with us today. And with that, uh, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you.